Kasi. Good morning, everyone. Cut that real quick. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to be here uh, to share what God has done. Uh, before I share my testimony, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise, Lord. We thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for each and every person in this room, Lord, and the many testimonies uh, that you've given us to carry. Lord, I pray as I share my testimony, Lord, that you've given me to carry. I pray that your name be glorified, that uh, it may not be about me, Lord, about to bring you glory. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my name is Alex Njimana, as uh, we've said, and uh, I wanted to share with you about how God used something very small, something very simple that you are very familiar with, and that is the, this little box, little Operation Christmas Child shoe box. Just a lift of hands. How many of you have ever packed one of these boxes before? Awesome. Almost everyone in this room. Uh, I hope today you'll be encouraged in knowing that your work is not in vain, and that you'll be living here wanting to pack even one more. Um, I was born and raised in, in Rwanda, and Rwanda is a very tiny little country in Central East Africa, uh, just south of Uganda. And that country went through a lot of tribal unrest in, um, in 1994. Uh, just a little bit of a history of that country is when, um, when Rwanda was colonized, they div the, the colonies um, divided the people of Rwanda in three tribes, and those tribes were the Hutus, the Tutsis, and the Twa. And in order to figure out what tribe you were, they would take a ruler and they would measure the length of your nose. And they would say, if you're very tall and slim, that means you are uh, a Tutsi. And if you're very short and muscular built, that means you're a Hutu. And then the Twa represented at least 1% of the population, but they were caught right in the middle of this, uh, of this war. But the hatred continued to grow and grow to the point where um, the, the, a lot of majority of the Hutus were told to hate the Tutsis because, um, um, be, because the, the Hutus, the Tutsis were known to own a lot of land and own a lot of cattle, and so there was all of this uh, hatred. But in, 19, in the 50s, we got, um, in the 60s, we got independence. And then in 1994, the government that was on at that point was considering uh, continue to build on that on the hatred. So, as a little boy, I was six years old when all this was happening. My grand I was living with my grandmother and my, my two uncles, and uh, um, because our mother had passed away when we, were, when we were very little, and we never knew who our father was. And so our grandmother and our uncles were the people that we looked up to, the people who, we, um, who, we, uh, who loved us, the people who discipled us, the people who took us to church. And so, that the morning of April 7th, uh, we were hearing noises from a distance and we did not know what the noise were, but our neighbor came to us and said, hey, the president of Rwanda was assassinated last night. Do not leave the place. Do not leave your house because there's roadblocks everywhere. Now, my grandmother, who had survived all of this hatred uh, all of her life, she knew that this time was not going to be easy. And so she told us to go and hide immediately. And it was that morning we hid in our coffee plantations, and then late afternoon we came back. And when we got back to our house, that's when um, we had noises by our, our house, and we wondered, my goodness, um, who, who are those? But then we heard the noise were our neighbors, uh, who we knew, so we're not, we didn't think much about it. But what happened was that uh, they would come into the house and they would break the door off the house. And when they got into the house, 
and broke, on, did, broke the door of the house. They told us to go outside and lie down. As we did what they wanted, they would uh, tell my, gr- my brother and my sister and I to go back inside the house. And unfortunately, that's when they would take our grandmother's life. Now, we would be wondering why in the world are these people doing this to us because these were not strangers. These people were our neighbors. We knew them by name. We considered them to be, to be friends. We went to collect water at the same well. So for us, we could not fathom that. As a six-year-old, we couldn't process that. Now, the goal during the war is that they wanted to wipe out the young generation and they wanted to destroy families from the foundation up. So one of our uncles was known to be the one who, would, who was providing for us. They would come looking for him, and they would look everywhere, and they couldn't find him. They looked under the bed where we even we had hid him. They couldn't get, see him because he, he had pulled himself on the springs of the bed. So they would leave. But uh, three days later, three men with the weapons came back and said, he's under the bed, let him get out. And up to today, we don't know who told him where he was. And so he would, he would come outside, and he would ask for his identity card, and at the age of 18 and older, you had to have an identity card, and that identity card said what tribe you were. And of course, he was a Tutsi, and so they also take his life. And again, wondering how can a neighbor, a people, people we loved, all of a sudden turn their backs on us just because we, were, we looked different than they, they did. And sometimes you couldn't even tell at all. The distinctions were just made up. So you couldn't even tell at some point. So we were living in, we are just... Uh, uh, in tears and wondering and processing all these things. Eventually, the other uncle who was left would bribe the militias for the following week. When he had no money left, he came to us and said, you know, you need to leave the village. Go to the city where your aunt lives because if you, st- if you stay here, they are going to come back and I can't stop them. So we walked to the city and there were so many incidences that would happen that we could have lost our lives, but God was protecting us from all of the militias on, on the roads because there were roadblocks everywhere. And a lot of people would come to these roadblocks and they would call, they would call people over and they would say, turn around, and you just never know their intentions. But we got to our aunt's house and we lived with our aunt for at least, um, for at least, for at least um, a month or so, but eventually we had to pack up everything and leave the village, as, um, leave the city as well because... In the city, there were more infrastructures. So in the night, we would find ourselves sleeping under the bed instead of sleeping on the bed because in the night, you would hear different buildings being destroyed. So a lot of debris would come. So we would find ourselves sleeping under the bed so we can have an extra cushion. It got worse. Eventually, we had to pack up and run. And, uh, but before we left the, the city, there, were, uh, there was a time when uh, a man snuck into the backyard where, our auntie, where we lived. And our relatives, all of us, about 19 people were there. And he took his weapon and he went to Lord. And uh, he's yelling at us to lie down. In, the, in, his, in, the, in that process, his magazine fell out of the weapon. And, and his weapon wouldn't work. And that's how God saved our, saved our lives. Eventually, we had to pack up and we ran. Now, Rwanda is a very tiny country, as I said. Uh, it is, is a, the size of Maryland. And that country has a nickname of a land of a thousand hills. So if you're not climbing a hill in Rwanda or driving up a hill, you're going down one hill. Uh, that's, how, that's a t- t- typography for you. So we, get, we climb these hills, thousands and thousands of people running. We get into this valley, and this is probably one of the most humorous ways that the Lord saved my life, that I love sharing because there's a lot of humor in this. So I'm running, and uh, I hear this noise coming from a distance. 
And this noise is getting louder and louder, and it's kind of like a firecracker. And all of a sudden, I slipped and fell, and, uh, and fell. When I fell, that noise missed my head by an inch. And my brother and I were just running, trying to figure out what's going on, and we found out that that noise that missed my head was a bullet because I had slipped in a cow paddy and fell down to the ground. And that's why I got used to have my life. Anybody live on a farm, on a farm you know, you, there's nothing glamorous about a cow pie, right? Uh, but I look back and say, what a powerful God we serve. Now, he works in mysterious ways. He works in powerful ways. But you know what? He likes to work in gross ways as well. Sometimes we don't want to see the gross part. I, uh, I didn't have a relationship with him at that point. So even all of these miracles that are happening, I don't see the, I'm not seeing them as miracles at this time because uh, I was just running for my life. But a couple years later, that's when I realized he was with me from the day I was born. So now after the war, after the genocide, we were put in an, uh, my aunt put me in an orphanage, me and my brother, we were put in an orphanage. Our, our sister went to live with friends uh, because she was too old to go to the orphanage. Now, to give you uh, just a, a little numbers, from April 6th to July 4th, 1994, about three months, approximately 100 days, over a million people were killed in that country. And over 400,000 orphans were left all over the country. So we get into this orphanage, and this orphanage, the facility was built for only 60 people. And we had 250 kids in that orphanage. And now that we're not running physically, the, the adrenaline had weighed off. Now our minds were starting to recall everything that we had seen during the war. With that came a lot of post-traumatic stress. Kids were screaming in the middle of the night. We're so, uh, it was so scary to go to bed because we knew that we're, gonna to, we're going to relive everything. Now, this is spring of 1995. And around this time, many organizations were, had already come to Rwanda because it was safe to go into the country. And then uh, one of those organizations that did that was Samaritan's Purse. And you know very well that Samaritan's Purse uh, responds to different disasters around the country and around here in the United States. Um, at that time, in 1993, they had taken on the project of Operation Christmas Child, so they brought shoeboxes to us in that orphanage. And let me tell you, it was such a powerful day when we, got to, uh, when we were told to line up in the yard, and they said, today's a special day, you're going to get a gift. And so we line up, and they hand out these gifts, and then they said, uh, do not open them until all of them have been handed out. So if we were impatient and first in line, we had to hold our present for at least five minutes. Now, imagine a seven-year-old having to hold a, a present for five minutes. It doesn't work really well. So we were shaking the shoebox, trying to figure out what was in it. And um, uh, we're already, some of us were already peeping through the shoebox a little bit. But when we got to open it together, all of us screaming, not because someone was trying to chase us to take our lives, but we were screaming because we could not contain the joy of receiving a gift. This was the very first gift I ever received in my life as a seven-year-old. And as I opened the shoebox, I saw the school supplies, the hygiene items, the little toy cars were in, that, in, in there, and little paint brushes. I remember one of my favorite items was a hair comb that I kept for the next three years. That's how important those items were. Now, you may be asking, you know, had Alex seen a pencil or a notebook or a hair comb? I had seen all those, all those items, but to have something to call my own, it was very special. Because at this point, as a seven-year-old in 1995, living in this orphanage, 
the orphanage directors are not going to worry about getting toys. At this time, their priorities were, we need to get food on their table. So for us to have something to keep us occupied, to, show, to, to remind us to be boys and girls again, because that's something that the genocide was taking away from us, it was very special. But it didn't stop there, because the orphanage director used the opportunity to share with us about Jesus Christ. And seeds of hope and love were planted in my life. And a year later, I get to join a choir, kind of like Amani Children's Choir. Uh, this choir was called African Children's Choir. And 12 of us left, left Rwanda, left the orphanage, and went to Uganda to start learning English. And while we were there, uh, we were reading the Bible, and they were teaching us about Jesus Christ. And I, was, and I was starting to ask myself, does God care? Does God love me? If he loves me and cares about me, why would he watch while my grandmother and my uncle are being taken away from me? And I spent my life blaming him for everything that happened. I would read the Bible. I did, I did not know the Bible well I, I, at all. I, I, I was just searching and reading the Bible, and I, and I would read that we are all created in the image of God, that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. And I would ask, how can that, how can that be, that a God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die a gruesome death on the cross to save his people, why would he watch while a million of his children are being killed in Rwanda? And if he loved me personally, why would he take away my grandmother and my uncle? So I lived in this bitterness, and I was reading the Bible, and I was searching. As a nine-year-old, these are the words that I read. Um, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, a verse that is very familiar to us. I want to read it, uh, read it for us. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, where it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I was nine years old. I did not know who Jeremiah was. I did not know who the Israelites were. But I knew this was the word of God, and I was searching, searching, does God care? Does he have a plan for me? And I remember in about a year period as I was being discipled, realizing that the Israelites prayed for deliverance and God, them, God made them open the seas and they walked on dry land. They cried for food. He fed them from heaven. Um, they cried out for water that they were thirsty. God gave them water to drink. They forgot all the miracles that they, he did for them and they made a God for themselves to worship. I looked at my own life. I was missing out on the miracles he did because when my grandmother and my uncle were taken away from me, the distance were from that, from that little shed to where I am. There was no any wall to shelter us from everything that was happening. When I was running and a bullet missed my head by an inch, slipped in a cow pie. When that man's weapon didn't load, when he went to pull the trigger, five teenagers, five young men stood in front of me and my brother and my sister, uh, and they said, look, why should we, uh, we should just finish these this, this kids off. And with the older one would say, why should we waste our energy on these kids? Look, there's no one to take care of them. Just right there, standing in front of them. I miss out on all those miracles. And then going to an orphanage and receiving a gift for the very first time, a gift that God used to plant seeds of hope and love in my life. For the very first time, I saw his presence that was with me, and that's when I gave my life to the Lord. But the following years were full of bitterness and anger because I was so angry that I actually wanted to do exactly the same thing that those men did to my grandmother and my uncle. And it scared me that that was in my life. 
But as I continue to be discipled, as I traveled with this choir, now my, I'm so happy to share that my connection with the Amani Children's Choir, you saw the video um, of about the guy who started, that, who started this ministry, where this guy was the person who discipled me, uh, Pastor James. He was the chaperone on our choir with the African Children's Choir, and it was around the time that God was calling him to do ministry. And so he was on the choir traveling with us, discipling us. And I remember when he would tell us to memorize scripture. I remember as a nine-year-old nine uh, memorizing uh, uh, James 1 and telling it to him. Uh, and so he was the one who discipled. So Operation Christmas Child planted seeds of hope and love in my life. And God sent people like Pastor James to disciple me, to water that seed. And um, I'm so grateful for how God is continuing to use him today. And one, another chaperone on, the, on tour challenged me with a question, and she said, hey, Alex, what happened in your life that you're able to be here today? So the very first time I shared my testimony, but then she said, what if you would sit with the person who has caused you the most pain? What would you do? And I was, I, I, I was um, challenged, and that question made me angry, actually, because there's no way I wanted to see that person who caused me pain. But the more I read the Bible and I saw uh, God's love lived out by, uh, by these chaperones uh, with people like Pastor James, I realized I will never have peace until I actually come to forgive the people who committed crimes upon my family. And so within about 12 years, I started to pray. I want to, Lord, help me to heal to the point where I can be able to meet the person who has caused me pain. And within these 12 years, I was going to continue to pray this prayer. I finished my tour in the United States with the choir and went back to, home, back to Rwanda in 2000. And then in 2003, God had another sense of humor. And um, I, met a, uh, I had met a family that wanted to bring me and my friend to live with them. And the humor is that they lived in no other place, not Hawaii, not Florida, but Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I remember when my family told me that... Uh, you see those lakes over there? They're going to freeze, and people are going to drive on them. And I said, no, you're joking. And then uh, that winter, I counted 10 cars on the lake driving on ice. Yeah. But uh, the family in Minnesota really continued to love us, and we still, this is, that's our family today. And um, in high school, while I was in Minnesota, um, I remember seeing Operation Christmas Child again, and I went to pack shoeboxes. And every, every time, every year, I would pack shoeboxes. In 2009, while I was in college, I went to, the process, to a processing center and to, to where the shoeboxes are sent and they're inspected for things that, uh, that, that cannot go in there, such as uh, um, candy and toothpaste and all these um, uh, food or world-related items. And so when we got there, we were praying for the shoeboxes, we were praying for the kids who are going to receive them. And I remember learning about the discipleship program that goes with the shoeboxes that um, the kids get a chance to go through after. So through the local church, like your church here giving an opportunity for a pastor to do discipleship uh, in, in their community. Through the greatest journey, that discipleship program, kids get discipled and they get a Bible in their own language when, they were, when they're done and they get a little certificate to celebrate. But they also... Uh, get an opportunity to share their faith with other kids. And last, last year, about 2 million children gave their, heart to gave their heart to Jesus Christ through the greatest journey. Amen. And that, 
And that is because someone like you packed that box and sent in and planted seeds of hope and love in, my, in, in a kid's life. Now, I want to share with you a little bit more of uh, my testimony, how God answered my prayer. Um, in 2008, I traveled back to Rwanda for the first time in five years, and my goal and my prayer was that I wanted to pursue that prayer that I've been praying for God to heal me. I went to Rwanda and found out uh, there was, the government was putting these meetings together where anybody could go to, and it would bring the people who committed crimes, and uh, they would do um, uh, testimony sharing, but the only two people who didn't show up were the guy who came, my grandmother, and the guy who came, my uncle. And I was so confused. I was saying, Lord, I'm taking my step, but you're not taking yours. Why? But in 2013, we traveled to Rwanda with the Operation Christmas Child, and we got to deliver shoeboxes in the same orphanage I grew up in, and that was very special for me. And, uh, but while we were in the country, uh, I decided to go back and find out, uh, go to the prison. And it was a process that would have taken about three weeks, but the Lord allowed us to have all the permission and all the paperwork in about three hours. And the lady who was in charge of all the prisons took us to the prison, and, met, and he, she said, you know what, I want to make this meeting possible. And so I found out that the man who had killed my grandmother fled, and the man who had killed my uncle was still there. And uh, it was the toughest day of my life to be able to meet with him and ask him, why did you do what you did? And ask him, do you remember me? And he would say, no, I don't rem remember you specifically, but I remember three children being there. And he would say, especially the older girl. And who was the older girl? My sister. In that moment, I would lose it, and in that moment, I would be in tears, but I know that in that moment, also, the Lord took my healing process at a different level. And, um, and what I was missing out is that God loved that man just as much as he loves me. Because the gospel I missed out is that I thought God had to love me more because I was an innocent six-year-old boy, and God had to love them less because they killed more than 30 people. But no, God loved us the same. And let me tell you, coming to share that with him and see that and hearing his testimony, it was rough, but it was also the most freeing day of my life. And you may be wondering why am I sharing this with you. I'm sharing this with you to show you the power of God and what he's done, not only in my life, but in your life as well. Because each and every one of us in this room has a testimony of praise, a testimony of what the miracles that God has done in our lives. I mean, for, for my, my testimony is full of uh, uh, things that you can see, war. But what is your testimony? What is the testimony God has given you to carry? And uh, this morning, I want to challenge you, like I was challenged as a, uh, a nine-year-old with that question. As you sit there, take a moment. Join me. Take a moment. Think of that person in your life who has caused you the most pain. What if you left church today and you had to spend that person? Maybe that person is actually not another person, it's yourself. Maybe there's something in your life that you have not forgiven yourself about or you, you are having, when you look at that mirror, you, you, you see that person and that person is you. What if you left church today and you had to spend that time with that person? What would you do? That person is creating the image of God, and God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them on the cross. God's heart aches for that person as well. And that's something, the gospel that I, I did not want to accept. That is the gospel that is packed within each, with each and every shoebox that you've packed. That is the gospel that goes with that shoebox. And um, I don't know about your steps, 
Uh, but there are a couple of steps. As I, as I finish, I want to share a couple of steps that I prayed for. I prayed for three things to happen. One is that I get a chance to meet the people who committed crimes upon my family. And so God allowed me to do that. The other step is um, that the other two have not happened. I want to go back and run the route that we were running during the war. Uh, I love to run. I've always ran as a little boy, and even in high school, I was running cross-country and track, so I love to run. And so I want to use that to, to say, Satan, you got nothing on me. Um, I want to go back and do that. But also, the other thing is, is it's a fun and funny. Uh, I want to buy a goat someday. Because my brother and I were goat herders, and we missed out on getting our goats when the genocide happened. So I'm going to get my goat someday. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> what is your next step? Maybe your next step is you've blamed the Lord Jesus Christ for everything that happened in your life and you've never actually accepted him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe this is it. Maybe that's your step. Maybe your next step is you've asked Jesus Christ to forgive you. You, you are in a relationship with him, but you've never taken that opportunity, that step to share his love. Maybe today could be your step to share that love. And Operation Christmas Child for us is specifically and a way that we've done that, sharing the love of Jesus Christ. And you've done that. But if you haven't done that, that would be a good step to do that. Maybe your next step is to knock on that neighbor of yours and say, look, I don't expect you to forgive me, but I want to live in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Whatever that next step is in your life, don't miss out. It's the best step you ever take. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for allowing us to be here, Jesus. We thank you for... Um, uh, dying on a cross so that we can have the freedom you've offered, Lord. Father, I pray for each and every person in this room. Lord, you know where they are. Lord, I pray for that person who, um, uh, who is searching for you, Lord, who is um, saying, where are you? Would you, Father, come and uh, be close to them? Remind them of your presence in their lives. Remind them how much you love them, Jesus. We thank you for this community, Lord, and how your presence is here today. And we ask that you may continue to guide us and continue to bring us closer to you. Uh, Father, we ask that you may continue to heal us from our, our bitterness and anger. Uh, Lord, help us to see those who have caused us pain the way you see them. It is hard, but Lord, you can do it and you can guide us through that, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for this day and we give you all the praise. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Alex, thank you a lot for just sharing your story today. So powerful, so powerful. Wow. So my name is Matt Reed, and I am a regional manager with Operation Christmas Child. What that means is I get to work with the amazing volunteer teams that serve with Operation Christmas Child all over the Great Lakes region. That's Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and West Virginia. And as a side little thing for fun, every now and again I get to have an amazing week where I get to travel with someone like Alex and just hear these incredible stories. It's been so good just for my heart over and over again just to be challenged to forgive, right? To think about those who've hurt me and, and take the forgiveness that Jesus has given me and pour that out on the people in my life. Wow, so powerful. So I just want to share with you just a couple of ways that maybe you could take a next step with Operation Christmas Child. And one is something that every single person in this room can do, and that is place the most important thing that you can possibly put in a box, okay? And that is your prayers, all right? We hear amazing stories of how God 
delivers a box that really should go just specifically to a certain child, and that child gets that box, right? Those kind of things happen over and over again. It happens because people pray. People pray. So we just want to invite you today, maybe if you haven't before, to pray with us to become a prayer network partner. We're not going to harass you, okay? We will send you a monthly email that just says, here's what's going on right here on the Ohio East Area team and also what's happening nationally and internationally with OCC. If you'd be willing to do that today, stop by the OCC table and you can just fill this out and become a prayer network partner. That is, man, that is a special partnership and every single person can do that. We want to encourage you, too, to maybe pack one more box. If you've never packed a box before, when Alex asked who packed a box and you didn't raise your hand, make this the year you pack a box, okay? Maybe you and your family say, okay, we pack one box for every person in our family. Cool. Well, this year, add just one to that. You don't have to add another family member. Just add one more box, okay? Because, listen, the only limitation to the number of children we can share the gospel with and, and hear me loud and clear, that's what this is about. Alex, you don't have any stuff from your box, right? Right. The stuff breaks, the stuff wears out, right? What is eternal is the love and hope of Jesus Christ. What is eternal is the gospel, and that's why we do this. So the only limitation we have to the number of children we can share the gospel with are the number of shoe boxes we have. So your extra box this year, that's an extra Alex, whose story of love and hope and redemption begins when they hear the gospel with that shoebox gift. So pack one more box. And the last thing I want you to consider is maybe joining and being a part of this incredible local area team. Out on the table, it says become a year-round volunteer. We have amazing year-round volunteers in the Ohio East team. And I'm not sure if you realize this. So I work for Operation Christmas Child, and I coach area teams, mainly across the state of Indiana. But right here in your church, you have a, a person who, the best way to describe it would be a volunteer staff member. And that's Esther Troyer. Esther is what we call a regional area strategist. And she um, is the really the top-level volunteer in our whole ministry. And there is... Um, Esther, you are an incredible volunteer, an incredible leader, and I'm thankful for you. But I want you to know, church, you have an incredible resource. There is no one, no volunteer in our whole ministry who understands Operation Christmas Child like Esther. So tap into that. Maybe you might be willing to reach out to other churches to encourage them to pack boxes or community groups or school groups. Maybe you might be willing to reach out to students or uh, make connections with the media here in this area. Maybe you are willing to rally others to pray. I want to encourage you. This team needs you. And it will generate more boxes, which generates more kids here in the gospel. Hey, thanks for letting us come and share Alex's story. Just take a minute. Pastor Eric, thank you so much, man, for, for just letting us take this time. To, and we want to end our day with you with a kind of a special little celebration. So we're going to invite back to the stage the Amani Children's Choir for one final song and dance time together. It's going to be a great celebration and a great way to end our day. So welcome back, the Amani Children's Choir.